Well, here we are, still in the wilderness. We're four weeks into a seven-week sermon series. That's right, three more sermons on this. But that's usually how wildernesses go. They go a lot longer than we'd like them to. Wildernesses are those seasons in our lives where we're uncomfortable. Usually they're marked by the resources in our lives being dried up or not knowing what comes next or grieving the loss of someone or something in our lives that were important to us. Wildernesses. What we've been discovering each week in the text as God's people are out in the wilderness is that wildernesses expose us for who we really are. All of our pretenses are stripped away and we are exposed for the sinners that we are. But even more than that, not as just our sin exposed, but our Savior is revealed in the wilderness. If we have eyes to see him. Wildernesses, they expose our sin and reveal our Savior. That's exactly what happens here in Exodus chapter 32, the worshiping of the golden calf. In some sense, today's sermon is a sequel of last Sunday's sermon. You remember last Sunday, it's up top the mountain where Moses is meeting with God and God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. It's an amazing scene, what's happening up there, that God, even in the giving of his law, is pouring out his love. Picture this almost like a a movie where you have two cameras in place. Last week was the camera on top of the mountain where God is pouring out his wholehearted love. And then we have another camera down the mountain this week. And it's like it says, meanwhile, (laughs) while God is pouring out his wholehearted love, do you remember last week God's giving his law, but even in his law, he's saying how much he loves us. There's that amazing phrase we looked at last week where God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Meaning, not that he's envious, we don't have anything that he desires, but he's jealous for us. He wants us. He wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. So that's the camera up the mountain, God's wholehearted love being poured out for people. Meanwhile, down the mountain. Let's zoom in a little bit with this camera of what's happening at the same time down the mountain. Now, I want us to look at this in a nuanced way, in a careful way, because for many years I knew about the story of the golden calf in a little bit of a Sunday school type perspective, a simplified perspective, where I saw people very foolishly and kind of in a silly way turning their backs on God and facing this golden calf they had created and bowing down and worshiping it. And I've heard a lot of sermons and teachings over the years that usually go something like this. What are your idols? And we all kind of think and feel guilty about it. I once heard a sermon that talked about, you know, at the Oscars, the, uh, the Academy Awards, the, the big golden uh, Oscar, whatever that thing is called, that that's our golden calf. And we shouldn't worship Hollywood. And I thought to myself, well, I, I don't watch that many movies, so I'm fine with that. I heard another one that talked about the emblems on our cars. Like, that's our version of the golden calf. We worship our cars. And I thought, yeah, but I drive a Ford, so it's not that exciting. (laughs) So I want us to look at these people. I want us to walk through some of the details of their story, what led them to where they got, where they're worshiping the golden calf. And I want us to ask, as I go through some of these phrases, I want us to ask ourselves, do we, do I, have anything in common with them? in their journey. 
When I read through it, if I'm really careful, if I'm really honest with what they were experiencing, I even have a little bit of compassion on them, frankly. I want to show you what I mean. Let's look at it together. This is Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read a phrase and do a little bit of explaining and read a phrase and do a little bit of explaining. And I think as we do that, I hope you'll see with me that we can have a little bit of compassion on them and that we might have a couple things in common with them. So let's go through a couple of these phrases together, starting with verse 1. It says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people saw that Moses delayed. We know from another verse we didn't read today that Moses was gone for 40 days. Now, usually in the Bible, when you see the number 40, it doesn't necessarily mean 40 literal days. They use those numbers a little differently than we modern Westerners do. Usually the number 40 just meant a full amount of time, a complete amount of time. He was gone a long time. Moses was. Moses, the leader, the one who had stretched his arms out as the parting of the Red Sea happened, the one who spoke to Pharaoh, the one who was God's representative, God's mouthpiece to the people. All of a sudden, he's gone for a long time. And the people are wondering, what happened to our guy? What happened to our leader? So that's the predicament that they are in. Let's pick up the story where I just left off. He delayed coming down from the mountain. So the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, Aaron was always the number two guy. Aaron was always the person next to Moses, not necessarily doing all the speaking, not necessarily doing all the action, but he was always there. So it kind of makes sense that when Moses disappears up the mountain for 40 days, they say, hey, Aaron, you're the guy now. And we're going to see in just a moment that Aaron isn't really much of a leader at all. He just does what they want him to do. But think of Aaron as like the, I don't know, the vice president or the associate pastor or the, you know, the assistant to the district manager. He's just the guy next to the guy. And all of a sudden, they, they put Aaron in Moses' place. And they say to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. I'm going to stop again right there and talk about this phrase. Make us gods who will go before us. This is really a, a military term or a protection term that they're asking Aaron to do for them. Make us gods who will go before us. Just this morning, actually, I came onto the church property early and I walked the perimeter praying for our church, praying for the day. And I love doing that. I remember that there was a vision about this church when it was first constructed, about this building, that there were angels standing around this sanctuary. I take comfort in that vision. I was thinking about that this morning, and I was asking for God's hedge of protection around you, around us, around our body this morning. And I felt almost as if I was bumping into it. It was so real and so present. And I heard God saying to me, Nathan, I go before you. I go before you. I felt comfort in that. And it immediately struck me that that very same phrase is what the people are asking Aaron for. Make us gods who will go before us, who will protect us. They had been experiencing lots of examples of that, but suddenly with Moses vanished, they needed something else to go before us. Let's move on. They kept talking. They said, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So what the people of God were experiencing in this moment was a leadership vacuum, a leadership gap, a sudden stopping 
in God's tangible, visible provision for them. When I think about this, I have a little bit of compassion on them. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God very visibly, very powerfully, very tangibly sent the ten plagues, and they walked out as free men and women, and they got to the Red Sea, and they didn't know what to do, and God split the Red Sea. This was a tangible thing that they could see before them. And they walked out in the wilderness and God provided manna. God provided water from the rock. God provided a cloud by day and a fire by night. All tangible reminders. And so when I see this gap, this leadership vacuum that the people had, it kind of makes sense to me that what did they do with this vacuum? What does nature do when it sees a vacuum? It fills it. It fills it. That's what the people did. What did they fill it with? A few things. They filled it with a a false narrative. They said, maybe, maybe Moses isn't coming back. See, this leadership vacuum they were experiencing was a perceived leadership vacuum. We know, we have the camera up the mountain. We know Moses is there. He's getting God's download. Moses hasn't abandoned his people. He's actually hearing from God. But down the mountain, they, they think, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's had enough of us and he's running. So they fill this vacuum with a false narrative. They fill the vacuum with another leader, Aaron who, as I said, is no real leader at all. He just does what they ask. But ultimately, they fill the vacuum with something tangible. Something tangible. And that's the golden calf. God had given them so many tangible reminders of his presence, the splitting of the sea, the the manna on the ground, the water from the rock, the cloud by day and the fire by night, and all of a sudden, whoosh, most of those things are gone. Moses is gone. So they think, Let's fill that vacuum. Let's fill that gap with something we create. Make us gods that will go before us. When I consider that, when I consider what their motivations were, I think, man, I might have been tempted to do the very same thing. And when I look even closer, and after they've constructed this thing, they've got this golden calf set up, and they've, they've declared this very strange statement where they've said, behold, these are the gods who led us out of the land of Egypt. It gets a little bit confusing. It's not so simple like a Sunday school perception of this thing. Let's pick up the story now in verse 5 to see something even more interesting. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want to just point out a couple of things of what was happening here. First of all, I want you to look at that word, that phrase, rose up to play. Uh, The ESV translators and most English translators are being really soft and being really PG here. And I don't know if there's any young years in the sanctuary, so I'm just going to say it this way. If you look at that in the Hebrew, the party that the people had before this altar was an adult-themed party. Okay. <laughs> you were waiting to see the phrase I picked out for that. If you don't believe me on that, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul is talking about this very same scene, and he refers to it, and he says, don't be like those idolaters who worship the golden calf and all of the debauchery that that led them into. So that's what's happening here before the altar. And let's look a little closer at this altar. I find this very fascinating. They build this golden calf. They start declaring that this is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron stands up and he says, tomorrow they'll have a feast 
to the Lord. So the next day, they put on this celebration, offerings and sacrifices, the very instructions God had given them for worship of Him in the tabernacle, and they do that before the altar, and they conclude it with an adult-themed party. So what I see here is not so much people turning their back on Yahweh, turning their back on God and worshiping this golden calf. It's more of a blend. It's more of a mix. They want their golden calf. They want their party. And yet they're making festival to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the actual God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. In a sense, they wanted God plus, right? They wanted God plus a tangible reminder to go before them. They wanted God plus, you know, the release of all their own apparently pent-up desires. They wanted God plus the desires of their hearts. They wanted God plus something they fashioned. They were half-hearted creatures. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Let's look at the camera real quick again, up the mountain. What's God doing? God's pouring out His wholehearted love in the Ten Commandments. And we look at the camera down the mountain, and people have these split hearts. They want to worship Yahweh. They want to worship God, apparently. But they also want all these other things that they've manufactured and that what their desires tell them they should have. So they have these split hearts. On Thursday mornings, uh, some of the women of the church, we call it Karis Women, they come and they do Bible study. Pastor Heather now leads it. And this past week, they were studying a book called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, and they came across this phrase that says, sin splits the self. Sin splits the self. That's an amazing phrase. And if I look at these people down the mountain, that's exactly what had happened to them. They were split. Their allegiances were torn. They wanted to worship God. They're making festival to the Lord. But they also have this plus activity. They have these golden calf and all the desires in this adult-themed party. They wanted God plus. They had split hearts. They were half-hearted creatures. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I remember coming across first when I was in college. It struck me as so powerful, I decided to memorize it. C.S. Lewis said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I really want you to hear this quote, so I'm going to put it up on the wall. I want you to hear the whole thing in its context because I think it really speaks to what was happening down the mountain and it really speaks to what can happen in any of our hearts. C.S. Lewis said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's one worth memorizing, isn't it? 
like when I look from that mountaintop view down at all the people worshiping that golden calf and having that party, I'm tempted to look at that and think, oh man, this is bad. They are so wild. They are so outside the lines. Their desires were too crazy. But, but I like what C.S. Lewis says. It's like when God looks down the mountain, he says, no, 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 they're, they're split. They're half-hearted. It's not that their desires, not that our desires, when we lust for things, when we desire things, it's not that that's too outrageous for God. God says, you're missing out on my wholehearted love. Or in C.S. Lewis's words, infinite joy. If the people playing down there by that golden calf had only waited for the revelation that was going to be coming down the mountain of God saying, I'm jealous for you. I want you. I want to be your God. I want to be everything for you. I want to satisfy your deepest longings and spiritual desires. It's kind of pathetic that we would set up a golden calf and have a party like that when we consider, in C.S. Lewis's words, the unblushing promises of reward that God is offering to us. When I look down the mountain at those people with split hearts, with half hearts, I look at all that activity and I think, this is us. That's the title of a TV show, isn't it? This is us. Or maybe I can say it a little bit more personally, that's me. I do that. I forget. When I experience wilderness, when I experience a gap in God's provision, I'm used to him providing in tangible ways, and all of a sudden he, he stops, and I try to fill that gap. I try to fill that vacuum. I could just wait on God and trust 40 days is a long time, and I could say, Lord, I don't know why you're taking this long to answer my prayer, to provide like you used to, but I want to trust in you now. I want to trust that your wholehearted love for me has not stopped. When we look down from that mountain down at the people, there's a fascinating dialogue that happens up the mountain. In the interest of time, I'm not going to walk through all those verses. I'm just going to summarize this conversation, this dialogue between God and Moses. It's in verses 10 through 14. The conversation went something like this. God and Moses are looking down the mountain at everything that's happening down there. And you know what God says. He says, you know what I ought to do, right? I ought to wipe them out. I ought to start over with you, Moses. That's effectively what God says. Forgive me for paraphrasing, but we only have 20-minute sermons here at Standwich, so I'm just going to have to summarize these verses. God basically says, my wrath is hot, and it ought to wipe them out. And Moses pleads with God in this fascinating dialogue. Moses basically says, God, remember your promises. Remember your promises and relent from the disaster. Relent from the wrath being poured out upon them. Now, this is the good news for us. Because if it's true of what was happening down the mountain, if that is us in some way, shape, or form, if any of us here have split hearts, if we're half-hearted creatures, if we want God plus, if that's true of any of us, God could look down from heaven and say, you know what I ought to do, right? I ought to wipe them out. 
But I imagine a conversation between God the Father and God the Son that went something like the conversation between God and Moses, where God says to the Son, I ought to wipe them out in my wrath, but Jesus says, Father, remember your promises. Remember. And Jesus said, I'll go. I'll go down the mountain. I'll go to that sin-stained world full of half-hearted creatures and I will take your wrath upon me. That's what happened on the cross. God's wrath was poured out. His wrath did burn hot, but it was extinguished on his own son instead of us. And when I consider that unblushing promise, it makes me want to turn back to this wholeheartedly loving God and say, God, have all of my heart. Forgive me for letting half my heart go to the things of this world, the things I've created, the tangible things, the desires that get pent up. Forgive me, God. Half my heart has been devoted to them, but I want to give you my wholehearted love because of what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. In a couple of minutes, Pastor Heather is going to lead us to the communion table, and we're going to begin with a prayer of confession. And it struck me during the 9 a.m. service that one of the things we confess in our confession prayers, we say, I have not loved you with my whole heart and mind and strength. That's a worthy confession. God has loved us wholeheartedly, and we miss out on that love when we split our allegiances, when we want God plus. So let's worship him fully, waiting on him if he is longer than we'd like him to be, and waiting for that promise of reward to come to us in God's timing. Amen.